This is WGRE 91.5 FM, Greencastle, Indiana. Good evening and welcome to Music for Life, music from DePaul. In this episode, Matt Skiba catches up with some of the winners of our annual concerto competition, whose concert is right around the corner. Anna Gatdula chats with some students about our next Green Guest Artist concert, the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, with guest pianist Alice Sarah Ott. I welcome back our former dean, Professor Amy Lynn Barber, for a concert honoring her years of service to DePaul, featuring former students and colleagues. And we present the first part of a wide-ranging interview with Green Guest Artist Maya Beiser, who shared a wealth of good advice with our 21st century musicians during her visit to DePaul. There are lots of exciting things going on in the DePaul School of Music, and we're glad you could join us for Music for Life. This is Matt Skiba. The Concerto Competition concert is coming up just around the corner. It will be Saturday, April 11th at 7.30. With me today, I have Natalia Fumero, a clarinetist. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming. Julia Massacott, a soprano. Hello. Dana Hart, a mezzo. Hi, Matt. And Julie Strasser, another surround. Hello. So why don't we start off everyone telling me a little bit about the piece they're going to be performing at the concert. Julie, what about you? I'm singing the doll aria from the Tales of Hoffman by Jacques Offenbach. It's kind of a funny number because I am a mechanical doll. So I kind of run out of steam. I fall over and then Professor Smith will wind me back up and I start going again. So... Uh, <laughs> yes, that's my aria, the doll aria. Okay. Natalia, what about you? Um, well, the piece I am playing was written by Carl Maria von Weber, 1811. And it is basically one of the pieces that got clarinet into the next step, into the novelty side of, of that era. After that, he was asked by the Bavaria king to write two other concertos. But this is actually the only one that was never edited again. So the version that I'm playing, it was just like when Weber wrote it. Dana, what about you? I'm singing an aria from one of Mozart's serious operas called Idomeneo. The aria is Il Padre Adorato, and it is sung by his son. It's a pantsroll aria. I seem to do a lot of those, actually. <laughs> it's kind of a sad aria. The son has never seen his father before, and when he meets him for the first time, he ignores him. And so the aria is just all of his confused emotions and his not knowing what to do. Okay. And Julia? I'll be singing Je veux vivre from Romeo and Juliet by Charlotte Gounod. And this aria talks a lot about the freedom of her youth. She's only 14. She's waltzing at a party that her parents have thrown her, and this is before she's ever met Romeo. So really, she's just dancing freely and talking about how she doesn't want to get married. She just wants to be young and free. Okay. So what has it been like for all of you to rehearse with an actual live orchestra behind you instead of working in just a choral setting that you're kind of used to at this point at DePaul? Dana? For me, it's been a very eye-opening experience because we've worked with an orchestra per se when we've done operas, but they've always been in the pit below us where you know they're not as close to us. And so having the orchestra behind us that close, it's kind of intimidating because all of the sound is right there, um, especially in Kresge, which is a bigger space. And you're going, oh my gosh, there's all this sound around me and there's a huge space in Kresge. It's very overwhelming, but it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. And that's all, yeah? For me, it's kind of the opposite. Usually we, the instrumentalists play just with pianists accompanying us. Um, so we don't have the chance to play out and as virtuosically as we want to. When you can play and just have a whole orchestra behind you to support is definitely an amazing experience. Julie, what about you? 
Well, in my aria, I'm doing quite a bit of movement with my arms. So I'm actually standing in front of the conductor a little further up. So I can't see anything that's going on, any cues or anything. So uh, it's been a, a little challenging to follow and stay with the orchestra when I have no vision of anything going on behind me. <laughs> okay. And Julia, what about you? It's interesting for me because I've never actually done it before. Even in the opera, my parts were accompanied just by the harpsichord. So it's interesting to see how normally I would be the leader leading the pianist, but in this you kind of have to go with the orchestra and you have a pre-established tempo, and that's really different from what we normally do. Okay. Well, we're all very excited for the concert. It's definitely a highlight of the year with all the other concerts we have going on. Again, that is April 11th at 7.30 in Kresge Auditorium. Thank you all for coming in. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks man. And good luck at the performance. This is Hannah Gothier bringing you the events calendar for the week of April 6th. On Wednesday the 8th at 6 p.m., Dan Hickey will be playing at Almost Home. At 7.30 that night, there will be a faculty select series concert featuring former DePaul student Orlando Sela. That will be at 7.30 in Thompson Recital Hall. On Friday the 10th at 7.30, if you're looking to hear more Dan Hickey, his senior recital is that night in Thompson. On Saturday, the 11th at 12 p.m., Myers Market will be hosting a cookout featuring local band Futsy. At 1 p.m. that afternoon, there will be a senior recital with mezzo-soprano Brooke Addison and bassist Jacob Peterman. On Sunday the 12th at 3 o'clock, the ISO will be here featuring pianist Alice Sarah Ott. At 7.30 that evening, Matt Acton will be giving his senior recital. That's it for the week of April 6th. Have a good week, everyone. From the student recital hour of Wednesday, March 18th, 2015, DePaul alum Josiah Rushing performs Loops 4 by Philippe Urel.
We're thrilled to welcome back to campus our former dean and percussion instructor, Amy Lynn Barber. Welcome home. Thank you. So nice to be here. So we've got you back to perform a final percussion concert with some of your all-stars from years past and your colleagues from years past. And I want to get into that, but I want to start somewhere else first. So yeah, that's, that's kind of sad sounding, a final percussion concert. Well, for, for <laughs> now, for the moment. I, I know. <laughs> but actually, I was just thinking, and matter of fact, I was telling our incoming 21CM director about the number of things that you started as dean here that we still keep going that are some of our most successful things. So, for example, music of the 21st century. So that was you, right? Yes, it was. You can point the finger at me yeah, for that. Um, we have I, you, though. <laughs> and I'm so gratified that it's continuing and, and that the students seem to love it every year and get so much out of it. It's wonderful. And it's a thrill to watch, you know, to see the students being coached by these great composers from all over the spectrum. And this year, Roberto Sierra was just fantastic. John Crigliano last year was just absolutely phenomenal and such a kind spirit. And the students grew and they continue to grow so much through that process, as do the faculty. Yeah. You know, everywhere I've been in Europe and the States, there are a lot of contemporary music festivals. And very often uh, they're kind of a hodgepodge of many pieces by many composers. Mm -hmm. And people kind of go away, often not remembering whose music they heard. And I thought it was much more beneficial to have one composer to really study in depth and get to know. And I don't think these students will ever forget the name Roberto Sierra right, right. or John Corleano or, right. or any of the wonderful people we've had here. And what's funny, so this is my fourth Music of the 21st Century Festival this year. And it wasn't until this year that it dawned on me because of something Roberto Sierra said. And he mentioned this right away. He said, you know, I've not listened to my music this way. So for the composer to have, you know, he's like, I'm thinking back to many iterations of my former selves that wrote this music. And he I said, remember, I've never had that opportunity. I remember Josh Wantner saying the same thing, that <laughs> this is a retrospective of my life and I've, I've never done this. And it really made quite an impact on him. Right. So it's a great thing because it's, it's powerful for the audience because they love having the composer there explaining their pieces. It's powerful for the faculty and students as the performers. But something that hadn't really dawned on me until this year was how powerful it is for the composers themselves. Mm-hmm. And then another of your inventions that actually started elsewhere and you brought with you is this idea of Percussion Plus. Right. The Percussion Plus project is a, an ensemble I started way back in 1993, so it's well over 20 years old. Wow. I was living in Prague at the time, and uh, we had a very successful life there, our own subscription concert series and playing at festivals throughout Central Europe. And as the funny thing is, as I moved from place to place, I reconstituted the group with new musicians mm -hmm. everywhere I went. And then when I came here to DePaul in 2002, I was just thrilled to be able to continue that with the university's support and reconstitute it, mm -hmm. it here. And now I'm going to have to do that again in, right. my, in my new location. But it's been a labor of love, and uh, it's a wonderful ensemble. So yeah. you can explain this concept of percussion plus. Mm -hmm. Well, there are lots of percussion ensembles now, right. mm -hmm. and that's great repertoire and great fun to do. But I really love the idea of playing with a flutist or with a violinist or with a singer or a pianist because it brings something really different to the group. Mm -hmm. And it's also quite selfishly been a vehicle for me to work with some of the most wonderful musicians <laughs> in Europe mm -hmm. and in the United States, invited guests, mm -hmm. instrumentalists and singers, and uh, 
it's a unique combination. Right. I don't. I know of no other ensemble in the world that focuses completely on this kind of repertoire. Mm -hmm. And we've had uh, many, many works commissioned for us, mm -hmm. which makes it even more special. And so now that you're back east, we get really almost Percussion Plus 3.0, right? Is that <laughs> yes. where we are now? Yes. It, right. it, the Percussion Plus project makes its Cape Cod debut, <laughs> debut on May 3rd. There we go. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. So... Now, this is bringing back on the Thursday night concert here at DeVaugh a collection of your former colleagues and students to put together the true Percussion Plus. I love the kind of irony here in that the Percussion Plus now, the, you are the plus in this case. You know, we're bringing you back as the plus. I never thought of myself as the plus. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, so, the, maybe the minus. I <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about this program? This program is going to be kind of representative of the kinds of things that I love to do and have done for many years. We're starting off with a group improvisation. Wherever I've taught and wherever I've played, I've always been involved in improvisation mm -hmm. um, with both percussionists and non-percussionists, and uh, Bonnie Whiting feels the same. So mm -hmm. we're starting with everyone, all hands on deck, for a group improvisation that I hope will really set a nice tone for mm -hmm. the program. And that will involve the current DePaul percussion students, uh, the alumni who have come, uh, Bonnie and myself, and uh, the Percussion Plus guests. Wow. So that's going to be That's going to be a fun. full stage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actually, it's not even going to start on the stage. Oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then uh, I'll play a solo piece after that, a piece by Marta Ptaszynska, a Polish composer who now teaches at the University of Chicago, but with whom I worked in Poland and, and in Europe many times. She's also a percussionist, but more known as a composer. Mm. It's a multiple percussion piece. Then we're going to play two pieces that were commissioned by the Percussion Plus Project. The first is by Carlos Carrillo, who was uh, a faculty member uh -huh. here at DePauw, now teaching at the University of Illinois, and he'll be coming back uh, to be here. It's for cello and for percussionists. Ah. And then we'll close with a big piece by Armando Baiallo, who's also uh, going to be here, and he teaches now at Southern Illinois Carbondale. Mm. And he'll be here. And uh, May Pong will play this piece. It was written for May and the Percussion Plus Project. We've played it uh, several times. And uh, my students played it on their China tour a few, ah. a few years back as well. The alums, Josiah and Patrick, will join the current students uh, in that piece. So it's kind of a nice mishmash of everybody and everything. And, you know, I love it when the students come back and perform for, but especially with, our current students, because Josiah and Patrick, when they were here, were just superstars, and then have gone on to continue to be superstars. And it amuses me and pleases me no end to see that they're sort of legends already <laughs> in the per amongst the current percussion right, they students. they didn't graduate that long ago, yeah. and they're legends. It's really cute to see that, and it's nice to see them interact, and the give and take, it's, it's lovely, really nice. And for all of us who've had careers as performers and as educators, that's the thing that you get as the educator, when you see the generations going on with something that you've touched and and I hope that you feel that here with all of the things that you started when you were here at DePauw that are now continuing on and the students who will continue on far beyond the walls of DePauw it's a wonderful feeling it's great to have you back thank you so much and it's been really great to have Bonnie Whiting here working with everyone since you've moved back east yes I'm just delighted with Bonnie's work naturally I'm pleased because we share a lot of the same mm -hmm. I think philosophy and aesthetic about contemporary music percussion all that and considering the immense logistics of organizing any percussion concert, I really want to give a shout out to Bonnie. I thank her so much for all the work she's been to. And thanks to you for 
making it possible. Oh, Bonnie's been great. She's been a real joy to have on campus, and we're all looking forward to it. Thanks. Good to chat with you. From the percussive celebration honoring Professor Amy Barber, here are cellist Ruth Marshall and percussionists Amy Lynn Barber, Dave Dwinell, Heather Sloan, and Bonnie Whiting, performing the third movement, Dying Like the Soft Breath of Butterflies, from the piece Dueling with Time, Bartering for Minutes of Existence, composed by Carlos Carrillo Cotto.
This is student producer Anna Gatula. On Sunday, April 12th, we have our next Green Guest Artist Concert featuring the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, and they are bringing with them the pianist Alice Sarah Ott. Today I have with me two pianists from our own school of music, Stephen Shannon Hi. and Jennifer Peacock. Hi, Anna. The Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra will be playing an all-Beethoven concert, and Alice Sarah Ott will be playing Beethoven's Concerto Number no. 3. What do you guys think of this piece? It's a really beautiful piece. It has a lot of Mozart influence. People say it actually has a lot to do with Mozart's piano concerto in C major, or C minor, sorry. Mm-hmm. But apparently this was the one where Beethoven kind of moved away from that, and the pianist and the orchestra both have equally artistic hearts. Hmm. So it'll be really beautiful to hear. Mm-hmm. And Stephen, what are you looking forward to Miss Ott's interpretation of this piece? From what I've heard of her work, I like the fact that she brings a lot of elements of dance music to her interpretations of classical work. For example, hmm. when she did the Rite of Spring, it was a lot springier and more <laughs> clearly articulated. And just, I didn't expect to think of the Rite of Spring as a dance piece, despite the fact that it's a ballet right. before. <laughs> I heard, so I'm just curious to see how that translates into her other work, because I don't know her Beethoven as well as I know the album. Mm-hmm. She's a very elegant player. A lot of really virtuosic pianists play Beethoven very bombastically and very mm-hmm. big, and I, I don't doubt that she'll bring out the richness and the excitability of it, mm-hmm. but I think she understands how to play a piece with poise and bring out all the elements of it, not just the virtuosic parts. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for coming in, guys. That's great insight. And I'm very much looking forward to watching Alice Sarah Ott play with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra here on Sunday, April 12th at 3 o'clock p.m. in Kresge Auditorium. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, Anna. Thanks. I'm Caroline Shaw, and you're listening to Music for Life. This is student producer Matt Skiba. With me today in the studio, we have senior clarinetist Dan Hickey. Hello. Talking about his senior recital. So first off, Dan, when is the recital? My recital is Friday, April 10th at 7.30. In Thompson Recital Hall? Yeah. Okay, great. Can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect on the recital? Well, there's several solo works, which you'd expect, but I'm also doing some chamber work as well. One is a piece for clarinet and soprano. It's The Shepherd on the Rock by Schubert. I'm doing it with Alika Okerstrom, our uh, graduate 21CM intern. And I'm also doing a piece that I've never played before that I've been dying to play since the first day I heard it, The Overture on Hebrew Themes by Prokofiev. And uh, this one is a sextet for clarinet, string quartet, and piano. It's probably my favorite chamber piece ever, but just the scheduling of everything has been so tricky. It's trickier than the music, actually, just to get everybody (laughs) together. But I'm really looking forward to that. So on the program, should we expect some older music, some more modern music, a little good mixture? You kind of like focusing on one area. There's some good mixture. You know, you've got the 19th century German, you know, Schubert, Schumann, both of the shoes on my recital. (laughs) Um, But then there's also the Premier Rhapsody by Debussy from the early 20th century, the Copland Clarinet Concerto, and then the Prokofiev piece. Okay. So since the Prokofiev piece is kind of more of a chamber work, in the solo literature, what would you call your favorite piece? It's really hard to choose because they're all so different. I think I would have to go with the Copeland Concerto just because as a clarinet player, it would be a sin to not say that. But. <laughs> 
So what kind of things make the Copeland stand out compared to the other pieces? It's a concerto, but it's played continuously. Although it is kind of divided into three parts. There's this gorgeous, slow, melodic first movement, which goes into a really cool kind of jazzy sounding, but very, very tricky cadenza. And then the second movement, which incorporates a little bit of jazz, but it's just a lot of that really Copeland-esque harmonies and syncopated rhythms, and it's also very tricky to count. Um, The thing that's really cool about it is it was originally written for Benny Goodman. Um, And so that's kind of where the the little bit of the jazz aspect comes from. And and that's also why the like extreme range of the clarinet is throughout this whole piece. He goes very low and then very high very quickly. So there's a lot of, a lot of quirks in there that are really fun to play. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for coming into the studio today and we will see you April 10th at seven 30. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. We're here live at DePaul in Thompson Recital Hall, and we're thrilled because this is the day we've been talking about for weeks. This is the day that Maya Beiser has arrived to campus, and she's kindly given us a few moments here to chat. So I'd like to welcome Maya to Music for Life. Great to have you here. Thank you. Happy to be here. So where did you fly in from? Did you get in okay? We did. Yeah, flew in from New York City relatively uneventful flight for a change. Well, that's great. <laughs> We've had a pretty rough winter, as I'm sure you guys had uh, here as well. So yes, we flying did. has been sometimes challenged recently, <laughs> but not this one. It's been good. Good. Well, I see your crew is setting up, and we're in for a real treat tonight. We're really looking forward to it. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions here for you. First of all, throughout your career, you've worked with some amazing composers. You've performed in major venues. You've worked with some of the major musical voices of our time. And all of these collaborations seem new and different every time you do this. For example, you were a founding member of Bang on a Can. Even though we know you as this iconic solo artist, a lot of your career has been an awful lot of collaboration, right? Yes, I love collaborations. I feel that it's what feeds you know, something new and innovative. Um, for me, it's always been about meeting fascinating people that would take me in new directions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of it has been about collaborations. And a lot of times these collaborations are not necessarily out in the public. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, what you will hear tonight, you know, you'll see me on stage, but there are all these other people behind the scenes. You know, there is a film by uh, Bill Morrison, who is a longtime collaborator of mine, who's created uh, a film. You know, there are all these composers who are not there on stage, but who worked with me very intensely on all these things. My sound engineer, who I've worked with now for 10 years, who I consider mm-hmm. to be kind of my duo partner, <laughs> but <laughs> right. he's, uh, he's behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that any successful artistic endeavor always involves a lot of great collaborations. And tonight you're opening the concert with a collection of rock covers, Mm -hmm. but these were actually arranged for you. Right, so here's the story (laughs) Um, in a nutshell. Um, You know, I'm classically trained. I grew up in a small little kibbutz in the Galilee Mountains in Israel and played nothing but the big masters, you know, great music of Western classical music as a teenager. I was discovered by Isaac Stern when I was 12. But when I was about 16, 
I started to listen to rock music. <laughs> and it was kind of my secret, you know. I mean, I couldn't talk to any of my teachers, God forbid, that this is what I really liked to listen to. And I wasn't just listening to the pop music at the time, but I really got interested in art rock and progressive rock and mm -hmm. discovered Brian Eno and Genesis and all these great people. And Janis Joplin became one of my big uh, heroes at the time. And I've always wanted to play the cello the way she sings. Mm. And I never kind of thought of, well, how would I bridge that? But a few years ago, I was doing an album called Provenance, which is really about the music of the Middle East. And a friend of mine, Evan Zipporin, who is also one of the founding members of Bang When I Can, uh, sent me this arrangement that he made of Led Zeppelin Cashmere. It was an eight-track cello arrangement and he said like hey what do you think would you like to record this and I realized in the middle of cashmere there's this beautiful middle eastern right, melody right so I thought wow you know this is such a crazy thing maybe I should just end the album with this which I did I recorded it in my studio which is a small little studio in New York City and then we mixed it in this wonderful studio in Brooklyn put it on the album it was sort of a bonus track <laughs> and Lo and behold, it became the most successful track I've ever released. You know, it just became uh, very popular. And then I started to get all these emails and people saying, would you do more of that? And um, so I talked to Evan and I said, you know, I think we should do a whole album of this kind of work. So yes, Evan arranged it for me. It was a very tight collaboration between mm -hmm. the two of us. So we worked on it together um, and... Uh, each song on this album and also each song of what you're going to hear tonight are songs that somehow changed my life in one way or another. So they were close to me and, and also that I thought makes sense to do on the cello and to try to figure out a way to make it happen. So did you go through a lot of these tunes to find the ones that worked best? Did you just write out a set list and say, let's do these? How did you choose which of those tunes? We did. We, we went through a lot of, and, and we actually have a whole stack of stuff that we haven't, we decided not to include in this album. So there are probably four more albums if we wanted to do it, <laughs> which, you know, I may or may not do, but it was two years of experimentation, really, what we did. And, you know, the process of multi-tracking with cello is a really beautiful one, but it's something that you just, you know, you start and you build things. And we really wanted to create those kind of soundscapes mm -hmm. uh, with each of those tracks and, and to find a very particular sound for each one. Some of them we thought worked, some of them we thought didn't, and so we let it go. The funny thing is, Back in Black, with the ACDC tune, mm -hmm. I really didn't want to do that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was not, because I'm not a big ACDC fan, that was not one of the things, that was Evan's thing. He's like, let's do ACDC. And um, at first we did it, and I didn't think it worked at all. And so we, we kind of dropped it. And then um, we started talking about it, and he came up with this other idea of how to make it work, which was really make it kind of psychedelic and put 30 different um, cello tracks on top of each other, as you will hear tonight. So we tried that, and all of a sudden it worked for me, and I thought, yeah, this is really good. And, and now I love it, you know, so it's... <laughs> That's terrific. So yeah. your career and the types of music, the types of things you've done have been very eclectic, as is your whole life story. Your parents are different nationalities. Is this... This has always been this thing that it's just my advisor, the very wide eyed, everything's possible, right? Is that it just seems to be what you're about. 
it is. I think the wonderful thing that I got from my parents was probably two things. One is, you know, always question everything. <laughs> Don't accept anything for granted in life. And the other thing is just this incredible sense of humanism, you know, and of art and music as something that is in the core of who we are as humans. So I've always wanted, for me, it was always about that. But I think it was also just that I didn't want to just take the well-traveled route. Right. <laughs> and I don't know even if it's that I didn't want to, but I think it was just I probably couldn't, you know. And so there was just always this streak of rebellion in me. <laughs> um, and it was always about wanting to explore things from looking at things from a different way. And I think I was very lucky in my career to just be kind of at the crossroads of where my personal desires and my personal aspirations somehow worked with what the rest of the world was looking for. Mm -hmm. And I do think, mm -hmm. you know, that there is, there is always that. But I also think that when you just have a passion for something and you go for it and you're not afraid to try what feels right, mm -hmm. eventually it leads you in the right direction. And I think that you know, it's about carving things and not just, you know, being a leader as opposed to responding, you mm -hmm. know, which is not always easy. Right. You know, and they're always and, and it's also about taking failures and getting up and, you know, and figuring out, OK, what am I doing? You right. Know? Yeah. Well, I say that a lot for 21 yeah. CM. Our yeah. mantra is kind of fail early and often, you know, yeah. just try because if you're not failing, then you're you not have, trying. Right. No, you know? no, you have to fail. And what's fascinating to me and the thing that throughout our exploration in the 21st century musicianship here at DePaul, mm -hmm. one of the things that we've discovered is that everyone has the same feeling. If you don't have chops, it's not going to happen. You've got to be the performer. You've got to have the skill set first. What you choose to do with that skill set then is completely up to you, but you can't bypass the skill set. So for you as a classically trained cellist, now blazing a completely unique path, what role has that classical training played in that for you? Absolutely essential. And you couldn't have said it better. And I say it time and again that in order to undo something, <laughs> you need to first do it. Right, you right. know, And so right. you cannot shortcut this process, unfortunately, or fortunately. So you need to, especially with an instrument like a cello, but really I think any instrument, it's a physical thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's um, you know, I mean, you can't take away the years of, you know, of, of just having it in your hands every day, working, learning, you know. And so once you get to a point where it's just part of you, which to me, I feel like the cello is an extension mm -hmm. of who I am. Right then you could start asking questions and then you could start, I mean, you can ask questions along the way, of course, and you should, but I mean, then you can say, well, do I really want to go that route and start opening it up? But yes, you cannot do that without the chops. And, you know, playing an instrument is an athletic kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's not different than being a dancer or being a, you know, a great athlete in the sense that there is this enormous of course, intellectual pursuit, but also physical mm -hmm. element to it, which needs to become ingrained. And I, I, I love the 
the authenticity of what you do. You know, there's never this moment where it feels in any way forced. It's not just that it's an original voice, but it's an original voice that's been carefully developed over time, and it has a true ring to it that I really love. And I think one of the concerns that some folks have when you branch out to other types of music, you do other things, it's some kind of shortcut for lesser musicianship to survive in a music school, for example. But no one questions that. Well, I'm, case, I'm happy that you brought that element because two things that I think is important for me to talk about. One is, when I was in graduate school at Yale University, if you were a great cellist, and we had 20 of the you know mm-hmm. most promising cellists, mm-hmm. uh, my teacher Aldo Parizzo, who used to teach both at Yale and Juilliard, would literally go around the world and just pick up the best cellist from around the world. But if you were considered to have like a, you know, the potential to be a great soloist, you would not play contemporary music. Or you would be looked down at like, why mm-hmm. would you do that? And I think part of it is because there were no role models of, you know, people who were doing that solo career that can be made, you right. know, with kind of trailblazing and doing new things. I think we live in a different environment today, and I think it's almost the reverse now, which is even if you're a great classical cellist with fantastic chops and you win every competition on the planet, your chance of actually making a living and having a career is very, very slim. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you create your own world and if you start creating your own genre, you're much more likely to be an attractive artists for managements and for, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, so I think, you know, looking at the business from that way, things have changed quite it, a bit. It, they right? have. And it's funny because I was just saying in a chat I was having before I came in here that 10 years from now, I think this will be very much even more the norm where people right. understand it, but we're kind of that, yes. the Moses generation That's here right. for That's for right. But the other thing of what you were saying, which I want to comment on is, you know, this whole notion of crossover. So crossover has really bad name. Mm-hmm. And the reason the crossover has a bad name is because the whole idea of crossover sort of started from from a marketing point of view. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. started with, you know, someone sitting at a record company saying, oh, we have Rene Fleming, you know, I'm just giving an <laughs> example of a famous artist or, you know, Placido Domingo, you know, they're so great, but we need to reach out to this other kind of audience. So why don't we have them do some Frank Sinatra work, you know, <laughs> and then and then they bring them together, they get some someone to arrange this thing for them. And, and as wonderful artists as they are, the project's not likely to be that convincing because it's not coming from their gut. So the one thing that, is true about everything I've done in my career is that it's always been driven by the things that really meant something to me. And I think that that's very important. I think that you need to keep this honesty as an artist and you need to just keep following what is really, and I think ultimately the audience and people out there, you know, sense that. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. That's exactly right. My comment about authenticity is, you know, people have these different ideas about crossover. I don't consider you a crossover artist at all. You know, you're a completely authentic voice that's choosing the music you're performing. And that is the difference between some suit going, okay, so if I take this big name and that big name and I stick them in a room, we'll get something to happen. No, it's not that at all. It's really, I'm speaking music that means something to me. And I love that you said this by saying that the tunes that are on the Uncovered album are tunes that meant something to me in my life. Because we all grew up in that time where this 
this rock and roll tune spoke to me, and this Brahms did too, but exactly. there's this idea right. of hierarchy. We don't need that any longer. Yeah, absolutely. That concludes the first part of Mark's interview with Maya Beiser. You'll be able to hear the rest in next week's show. From the Student Recital Hour of Wednesday, March 18th, 2015, DePaul alum Patrick Speranza performs She Who Sleeps with a Small Blanket by Kevin Volans.
We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Music for Life. We love hearing from listeners. You can contact us by emailing musicforlife at depaw.edu. We're also on Facebook at DePaul Music for Life, and you can subscribe to our show on iTunes by searching there for DePaul Music for Life. Our student producers are Anna Gatdula, Matt Skiva, Burke Stanton, Rachel Amalfitano, Hannah Gauthier, and Caleb Denning. Our 21CM graduate intern is Elika Okerstrom. Veronica Pedrel is our online editor, and our show is produced by Matthew Champagne in the Judson and Joyce Green Center for the Performing Arts at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. I'm Mark McCoy, Dean of the School of Music. Thank you for listening to our show. Keep music in your life, and have a great week. It's music for life.